Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Today, our guest is Frank Padalano. We're going to talk about uh, Frank's experience going from being a, a busy professional, a teacher, to now a financially uh, free, independent, left his job, real estate investor. For those of you who do not know, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate syndicator, real estate investor. Love talking about real estate investing. And just like you, I am a busy professional. I am excited for this topic today. I've known Frank a little while now, been watching him, you know, go. He just closed his first syndication as a general partner. Some quick facts about Frank before we get into it. He's invested in about a thousand doors. Like I said before, he was able to leave his full-time job by investing in real estate. And now that he no longer has his full-time job, he's able to walk his kids to school every morning and go out networking whenever he wants. Or go on podcast interviews with like he is with me right now at 8.41 p.m. on a Wednesday. So Frank, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, sir. Happy to talk with you again. Can you tell us about you know your story and what it was like getting started as an investor and a teacher? Because you have a lot of time commitments. It's tough to do. What was that like, You know, getting over that first hurdle? Sure, so um, I was a full-time school teacher for uh, 17 years. And uh, when I was a kid, my dad owned a couple houses. Um, I always joked that he wasn't always the uh, best at real estate. It was a little too easy on people sometimes. And uh, I never really saw him grow, but it wasn't necessarily that big of a deal because he didn't want me to do any real estate anyway. <laughs> he, uh, he basically wanted me to get one of those, uh, you know, safe, secure jobs that they always talk about in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So um, at one point I thought about doing some accounting, but... Uh, I decided to uh, be a history teacher. My uh, girlfriend at the time, she was uh, going into education, and I thought it was a pretty, a pretty cool idea, too. This was back in the 90s, you know, when uh, teachers were thought of uh, pretty highly uh, with the Clinton era and everything else. And uh, I said, cool, and uh, we went for it. And, uh, yeah, so great experience teaching, but uh, over time, you know, you start to get tired of things. And uh, I enjoyed stocks, but I lost money on them a few times. <laughs> And uh, basically, I said, let's uh, diversify a little bit. So um, obviously, I might be dating myself a little bit, but oh, I bought uh, my own personal house at the top of the last cycle. Oh. And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, where I joke, we closed April Fool's Day, 2005. Uh, And we still live in the same house today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We don't plan on moving, so I consider it like the Warren Buffett style. You know, oh, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. what you paid for it. If you, if you feel like where you are, you're not, you know, we've refied twice, but we've only refied to uh, lower the payment and lower the rate. We haven't taken any cash out necessarily. But um, basically, as the cycle went down, uh, I decided to buy a uh, triplex. We call them three families around here in Rhode Island um, at, in 2009. So it was, it was a good time to buy. Uh, everybody was so fearful though. Everybody thought I was crazy and I thought I was crazy a little bit too, but I figured I'd diversify a little bit if you know what I mean. And, uh, at the time I bought it for like, um, just to show you the numbers and I know numbers are different in every part of the country, but, uh, I paid 129,000 for it. And, uh, the rents were about 650, 625 and 600, you know? So, uh, it sounds good on the 1% rule. Yeah. But, that's a good deal. Yeah, but it's funny we didn't make any money the first few years because it was a foreclosure, and we're always fixing stuff up. 
Uh, you know, new roof one year, new heating system the next year, new water heaters the next year. I joked in the first couple of years, we really didn't make any money, you know, but it's a great property. I mean, we still own it. I have, um, I have, a, I refied it recently in order to do some stuff. But besides that, we had no mortgage on it for a couple of years, which was pretty cool too, you know. And nice. then uh, gradually uh, every year I'd buy another uh, one or two properties. Uh, mostly smaller multis. Sometimes, uh, depending on where we were in the cycle and the price, uh, I bought a few single families for a while, stuff like that. I actually thought about syndications about um, maybe about seven years ago, but was uh, steered away because uh, a few of my friends uh, lost money on them. Interesting. Seven years ago, at a, at a good time in the market to be investing. And seven years ago, we were pretty much on the upst- upswing in most markets. Yeah. So that's interesting. Uh, they just had a, uh, a syndicator that was a, a newbie that wasn't doing that well in, uh, I think it was in Texas, Texarkana, I think, like hmm. on that Arkansas line. And uh, I won't get into too much, but uh, a, few of my par- a few of my buddies lost money, so it kind of steered me away for a few years. And it's good and bad to it. I mean, I was able to continue to grow locally. I started to buy some like six units and, you know, a, a nine unit and stuff like that. And uh, over time... But about, you know, about five years ago, I said, you know what, I'm not going to be teaching forever. You know, I had a a few, you know, rough days once in a while because uh, students always write and uh, administration (laughs) keeps getting tough and everything else. So uh, we decided to, uh, you know, I started to say, you know, what, if I keep doing this real estate thing, I could probably leave my job. You know, so uh, we just kept we kept buying smaller stuff. And then uh, last year, I actually left teaching in uh, June. That's awesome. Really cool. Yeah, that is really actually, exciting. I started to uh, invest in some syndications last year as well, uh, mostly on the passive side. Um, you know, small small money. Uh, well, obviously not small for the average person, but I'm saying it wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, it was it was twenty five or fifty thousand dollars on each deal. But what I'd do is I'd sell one of my houses or refi one of my houses and start to move some money into other markets because the biggest problem for me is that. Rhode Island's considered not necessarily the best place to invest. Um, some people call it tax hell. CNBC called it the worst place to start a business. Really? And, uh, yeah, just because of the uh, the regulatory structure and the taxation and everything else. But um, I had ninety eight percent of all my money in Rhode Island real estate, so Oof. I had to uh, I had to diversify a little bit. So now we're uh, I'm in in the last year we've invested in uh, five other markets. Nice, nice. Are you finding that uh, the business, you know, environment is better in those other markets like you expected? Well, since I've since I've invested in all of them in the past year, I mean, I haven't started. I started to see some distributions, but um, I just feel better about it. Like I have uh, a friend of mine that does syndications, or he did syndications. He's more of a bear. I won't mention his name, but he's basically sold his entire. Perf- he sold his entire portfolio right now just because he's worried about where we are in the market. And I say to myself, I say, you know what? If I kept my money here in Rhode Island, I'd have the same problem. The difference is, is I feel that the other places might turn around quicker. You know? So if we hit, you mean if we hit a recession or a downturn that uh, yeah. Rhode Island's going to have a harder time coming back? I, I joked that their first in recession and last out. So you know, <laughs> one of those states. Interesting. That well, that's good to know. A good bellwether 
uh, for the next the next coming recession, I suppose. You know, it's going to happen eventually. I'm curious, how many units did you have that uh, such that you were able to uh, leave your job? Like, what did it work out to in terms of that? So, because there's partnerships and stuff like that, I had about 15 or 20 units myself, and then I had another 30 units with one or two partners. You know, and then uh, besides that, I started to do the syndications, and obviously. Doors don't necessarily mean a lot with syndications per se. It's more of a yeah. percentage of your money and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, 50, 50 doors between myself or one partner or two partners on a deal, which is pretty nice. And a few of them we had paid off. And uh, even though I love teaching, I mean, my wife's still technically, she's still teaching. Uh, I think it's borderline whether or not she needs to, but uh, she's very big on safety. And uh, you know how much of a problem the uh, entire healthcare system is today. Exactly. Yep. So uh I mean, we do pay into the medical through her teaching, so that helps too. That'll be another jump, though. I, I, I told her that if she wants to be out, I, I would suggest uh, five years, but it all depends on what she wants to do. She loves what she does, and uh, are there straining days for her as well? Absolutely, but she's able to uh, to do what she wants and love it, so that's fine by me. That's great, and a lot of teachers still have to – uh, work throughout the summer to to bring in the money enough money to to pay the bills and you might be in a position where you know your wife at least gets the summers off you know i don't know absolutely we have three kids so summers are mostly filled with uh you know at least one week of vacation a couple uh scout camps and uh stuff like that summer is quote unquote off but working the family the whole time absolutely yeah, so, so uh, something I wanted to talk uh, with you about about with you uh, today is like the mindset that enabled you to kind of take that leap and make it happen. And and we talked about this offline, but something that really strikes me, something I hear a lot. I remember this one experience. I was on a some Facebook group somewhere, and they were talking about real estate investing. And there's one particular comment where this gal said, "I can't invest in real estate because I'm a teacher." And I already knew you, we were already friends. So I knew about you and I was like, nah, man, Frank did it. That's not a valid excuse. And I, I didn't chime in on that discussion, but it's something I wanted to talk uh, with you about with you today. Keep saying that backwards. Uh, because I don't know, do, do you see that mentality a lot in the teaching world? And, and what do you think kind of set you apart that enabled you to you know, get, get past that and, and make this happen? So I, I agree that I do see it a lot. Um, I don't think it's just teachers. I think it's a lot of people that work in um, safer industries mm -hmm. that we don't see the potential of things uh, being swallowed up or a number of layoffs anytime soon. Um, I mean, do doctors, and I know we have this whole nationalized healthcare debate, but I, I see the same thing probably with uh, with doctors sometimes too. I mean, doctors aren't going anywhere. They might get They might get tired of their job and that's why they're moving, but you know, stuff like that, uh, teachers, uh, firefighters, stuff like that. Some of those jobs are much more stressful than teaching, but they know the jobs are going to be there. Mm -hmm. And they know there's some kind of, usually some kind of pension uh, related to it. So they're not necessarily worried about their future and their retirement too much as well. You know, but you're right. It's, it's, it's very much about excuses. I see it all the time. Uh, you see it too, uh, social media especially, too old too young, too this, too that, too fat, too skinny, whatever. There's, there's going to be, well, think about it. You know, there's tons of excuses. Uh, we probably have a mutual friend. I'll mention his name. He's awesome. Uh, Dave Tupin. He's like 24 years old. He's killing it down in the Texas market. He's worth a few million bucks. And 
people say, you know, 24, oh my God. And he's hustling. He works harder than I do, but uh, he's amazing. And <laughs> there's, there's, there's no excuses. It, it, he didn't use age as an excuse. And I know plenty of 18, 19, 20 year olds that are out there may, doing a killing like this as well. Um, at the same point, there are, there are people that are older too that, you know, they finally, uh, something, some light bulb changes or something in their own mind. And now they're out there doing it and uh, they can. And it's awesome. Yeah, they realize maybe at the end, uh, they once they're older, they realize that, you know, the end is coming and I better take the risk because I don't know, it's going to happen. And age is a indeed a convenient excuse. I guess that's something I hadn't thought about and is that the um, folks who gravitate to the safer industries or, or maybe quote unquote safer industries uh, might tend to also be more averse to, to taking a risk to, risk to uh, get into real estate investing. So that's a, an interesting point. Interesting so, perspective. So one thing I will say that a lot of teachers don't think about is this online technology, you know, you get the virtual assistants and everything else, online technology where people from India and people from the Philippines will be able to teach kids is coming, you know, yeah. robots, everything on the internet. I mean, we don't even use the last four years as a history teacher. I didn't even use a book. Everything was on the, uh, was on the cloud or on the Chromebook or something else. You know, so it's coming. That's, uh, you know, that's interesting as well. And something I did not mention at the, the beginning of the show is that you also have a, a virtual assistant company. And that's something that I, I, I don't really know what you're doing uh, with that company. Do you, would you mind, uh, you know, cluing us in on, on what you do? And Sure. You know, so um, I have a buddy, his name is Pedro. He, has a, he owns his own translation company. And he's been using virtual assistants for like uh, eight or nine years and he said frank you're so connected in the real estate industry why don't you go out there and help others by using virtual assistants and uh we don't make a killing on the business it's a little bit of a side hustle it's one of those small businesses that i just enjoy doing uh we actually haven't pulled any money out of it and it's more just to uh help others and uh what's really cool is we built a lot of connections with it uh there are people in the industry i won't mention any names that you know that use some of our assistants and that's one of the ways I was able to uh, get closer with them and network with them is by basically helping them. It's just like when you've uh, set up uh, your, uh, your own real estate networking group. You know, you've created the group. You've helped others. You're not necessarily making a killing on it, but it's really it's made a lot for you, right? It's built a lot of connections. Absolutely. Yeah, my group, uh, I didn't even start charging for my group until uh, the beginning of this year. And even now I'm charging five bucks a person. but prior to that, I was paying all the costs. And eventually at the end of the year, I was like, this thing cost me a thousand dollars. It would be, you know, this year, which is not a lot of money, but you know, if I charge $5, then I'll at least break even for the year. So same thing. I mean, we, we don't, we're not actually, I mean, it's not set up as a nonprofit, but we're not actually using it to, to um, make a killing on it. We're using it to help others and to, to build relationships. That's interesting. And, and the, as you said, the use of virtual assistance goes across the, uh, at least in the syndication space. I mean, everybody that's big in syndication that I'm aware of is using some virtual assistance in their business to varying degrees. Some are using uh, a lot of virtual assistant hours to run most of their business. Well, so we talk about it all the time. There's people that use other people's money. We all do it in real estate. And this mm -hmm. is basically using other people's time. You know, you're leveraging things that you don't want to necessarily do, but you know need to get done. And uh, that's one way to do it. 
That's really smart. I mean, delegating those tasks, I think that's probably one of the biggest things that a lot of people struggle with at the beginning. I know, you know, I still struggle with it is you know, finding the right person, especially a virtual assistant to handle those tasks. And it sounds like uh, what you're doing with your business is you help find these virtual assistants and, and vet them and, and place them, you know, with, uh, you know, whoever's hiring them. Is that what you do? Or, you know, what does that whole process look like for you, you know, to get into that business a little bit? Sure. So we interview about, you know, almost a hundred people in order to get like one or two. And uh, we call them real agent helpers. And uh, once somebody needs a real agent helper, they contact us, they become one of our clients and we make a little bit of the spread in between, in between, but it's, it's not as crazy as people think because we always have extra virtual assistants on staff. Sometimes we'll have somebody that's uh, just starting out as a syndicator. We've hired somebody and then they don't need the person anymore. And uh, we usually keep them on staff until we find a, re uh, find a replacement client for them, stuff like that. You know, because we're, we're providing a service. There are people that need help in the Philippines and in other places that we use. And basically we help support them. You know, it's just like any other business, small business, basically the same thing. You know, you have little uh, pizza places and everything else that they hire a couple extra staff to make it easier. And uh, they don't always make a lot of money on it, but it's the right thing to do. Nice. I like that. And, and we've talked about it before. A lot of folks, um, we don't know how much skill we can really expect to get from virtual assistants. What is the skill range like uh, for your business? And, and, you know, how much does it cost to get somebody that has, you know, an appreciable amount of, of, skills like good English skills and, you know, some business acumen, things like that. Yeah. So most of our, um, most of our real agent helpers come from the Philippines and uh, as a society, they are very much into this whole online technology. The government specifically uh, wants foreign companies and corporations to use uh, them. They have whole, um, big skyscrapers that are filled overnight, by the way, because they're about an 11 or a 12 hour difference from us. Mm -hmm. So most of the time when you're, when you get a, when you're making a phone call between nine and five, that's between 9 PM and 5 AM for them. Uh, they, oh, they have, I don't know what percentage of the population, but a large percent of the population works overnight, which is just quite interesting for me, you know, and basically for skill sets, I mean, most of our virtual assistants, they're either doing um, social media support, or we have some that are all phone support. We have some that do market research. Um, we have some that just do email management or CRM stuff. And uh, most of them are pretty good. Like I said, we do go through uh, quite a few to narrow down people. But uh, we double, ch I'm, I'm not worried about their English skills at all. And in the, in the Philippines, the accent is not as harsh as some other uh, as other other countries. So, for example, if you go with a, a virtual assistant from India, many people have a harder time understanding the accent. Yes, yes. I think one of the issues, if you will, that I've run into personally in hiring virtual assistants to do like copywriting is that it just it some of the things that they write kind of read as though they're not written by somebody who's native language is English. It's written by somebody who's got a really good grasp, but there's, there's nuances that now you wouldn't say it that way if you really, you know, grew up speaking English. Is that a hurdle that you've been able to get past? 
So we, we hire for different things. Um, that would be, the cost isn't much different, but we consider that more of a, I'm trying to remember the exact wording because we were just looking for one. We consider them more technical writers, mm. you know, versus our normal um, support staff. So most of our, as most of our support staff is, you know, 90% of our people are like CRM, phone call answering, stuff like that. But it's a, it's a, it's a little different for someone that, but you can still get people that have a master's degree in English. And even after paying us a little fee, you're still paying them less than $12 an hour or something, you know, and, and we, we, we test them. I mean, we have them write essays for us. And we, uh, that, at that level, the technical writers, and then we even send the essays to the client say, hey, listen, here's three people that we're thinking about. Which one do you like best or which two do you like best? And I'll let you guys interview them. Nice. Nice. So I, uh, I went to a conference in the fall of last year, not Ultimate Partnering, a different one in Philadelphia. I don't think you were there, but maybe this year, this year you can get to it. But um, Do you know what it was called? Do you remember what it was called? The Mid-Atlantic Summit, Dave Van I've Horns. heard of it. But- yeah, it was it was really good. Uh, one of the speakers uh, it, it runs a, a Airbnb business with properties in like San Francisco, but he is uh, location independent. He just bounces around Asia and stuff. But he runs it using virtual assistants in the Philippines. And one of the things that he talked about that one of the issues that people run into, especially when they're new, is the what he called the disappearing Filipino. When you hire a virtual assistant and things are going well. And then poof, they're gone for whatever reason. They just go away and, and quit by leaving. Have you like run into that or how do you control that or, or account for that in your business? And, and what do you recommend for those of us that are hiring to keep that from happening? Because there's be- obviously behaviors that we can exhibit to reduce that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that we've only probably lost two um agent two real agent helpers in the last two or three months which isn't bad as a percentage but um we also pay better than the average Mm. you know um the average person that that works in the philippines um they're just like the average person that works here i mean they're usually a little a little different but you know some of the works at walmart some of the works at mcdonald's they still need cash you know and filipino pesos they still need it so if you pay them well um, and you go through a little bit of training, but besides that, I haven't really worried about it or seen a problem. Like I said, we've only lost one or two in the past three months. Interesting. And it sounds like, I mean, you have folks that, uh, come with masters, master's degrees and everything. And, and, uh, from conversations that we've had, it sounds like you're not hiring or, or folks aren't hiring through your platform for two, three hours a week. It's a bit more. So people really can use that, that income. And, uh, and need it and they're less likely to, to kind of leave it. So you're going to laugh. Um, it's actually tougher to keep people that are better qualified. So if they have a master's degree or something else, they often don't want to work the overnight shift. Mm. And, and, you know, stuff like that. So they're more likely to go AWOL, if you know what I mean. They're, they're, and if they're, if they're really highly qualified, which does happen, um, they're more likely to get, you know, you know, pouched by somebody else. You know, but, but to give you an example, um, we, I had, uh, one of the things that drives me nuts is how much virtual assistant companies are not that are out there, but how there's so much going after people, you know, like I'm sure you see it on LinkedIn, 
I get, I accept people all the time on LinkedIn. And then the first message I get from them is how they're going to offer me a virtual assistant and everything else. And and the funniest thing is like, they said, Oh yeah, well you can get virtual assistants from us at $4 an hour. I said, guys, stop right there. I own a virtual assistant company. We pay our assistants more than $4 an hour. So I don't know how you're, able to charge me four dollars an hour you know what i mean if, if for some reason they can make a profit and only charge four dollars an hour there's something wrong there i don't know how the heck they're doing it i've been wondering myself but i mean for full time we charge we charge about eight dollars an hour is what we charge the client we make a couple bucks in between not not a couple bucks an hour a couple bucks total we're just making a small spread on it but it's like we pay them more than four or five dollars an hour so don't i can't use that's an excuse i, I don't know if they're scamming me or what you know Oh, probably. I mean, well, I don't know. You can't, again, don't want to levy <laughs> accusations of scam, but they're, you know, just getting people to fill the seats. And I mean, to be honest with you, I've been ripped off by uh, a VA platform, not Upwork, but one of the ones where um, they, you like buy a, a block of time and then, hey, you know, we've got the people for it. You just tell us what you need done, give us a training tasks, and then they'll go. And, you know, if you have a problem with, the person you get, then we'll give you another one, no problem. And it was just, it was pulling teeth to get them to do anything. I mean, I bought, I think I bought like 20 hours worth of time, not much, just to see, just to try. Yeah. I, I could only like, I could only get them to use like 15 hours worth of the time. I kept begging. Wow. I know the one gal disappeared and I contacted like the president of the company and I kept trying, like, give me somebody new and they wouldn't do it. So it's, that's you know, crazy. These less well, be honest platforms are concerned. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. I mean, me, uh, totally different for me. I don't. I spend less than a half an hour a day on that. that I mean, virtual assistants is just like one of my little side fun things, and it's to build networks and everything else. Most of the time, I am looking at properties online, or uh, you know, just doing some other real estate stuff. Just uh, start my taxes or something. <laughs> so you're gonna kick out of this. Uh, yesterday it was pouring here in Rhode Island, and uh, my twins are in third grade. So um, I said, hey, guys, you want to walk to school? And they look at me because they know I'm crazy daddy kind of thing. It's like, okay, get the, um, get the umbrellas out. And we walked in the rain with umbrellas to school. It was really awesome. Well, if, you know, if that's what you enjoy, I guess you're, you're spending time with your kids, so you like it. But Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just memorable stuff. I mean, uh, it's not like it was a blizzard out there or anything. It wasn't snowing, so uh, I was willing to go out there. That's true. That's true. Memorable is a, is a good way to, uh, to put that. So, uh, like I mentioned before, you recently closed on your first, uh, syndication as a general partner. Uh, what do things look like you look like for you moving forward? That syndication was a 506 C for those out there who don't know. Uh, that means that Frank could, uh, publicly advertise the syndication before they closed on it. Uh, will you do it a 506 C in the future? Will you keep syndicating? You know, what's your plan? So, it, number one, it was a heck of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> every Well, it's definitely a learning experience, and there's yep. definitely a learning curve, but every step of the way, it was just like, wow, wow. You know, we didn't, we, it, it was harder to raise than we thought. Um, it was in a market that my two partners, so it's, I, can tell, I can tell about it. It's in Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, I like the market a lot. Uh, Idaho is actually one of the top places that people are moving to in 2019 and 2020. It's two hours out of Salt Lake City. So what was amazing about it was uh, Salt Lake City is such a hot market that they're both from Salt Lake 
City, they, they couldn't get to raise any money in Salt Lake City. People like, I oh, and yeah, I'm not going to do poker. Too. I'm going to keep investing here, you know, hmm. in Salt Lake City. So uh, I was, I had to bring a lot more of my, um, a lot of my uh, network together. And uh, because it's a 506C, you can only use accredited investors. And uh, my network was not, yeah, there's not many teachers that are accredited investors. You know what <laughs> I mean? But no, my network was uh, mostly uh, just regular real estate people. You know, somebody that's doing it part time, they might have five or six properties, but they're not, they don't have enough money and they don't have enough assets to be accredited. And even a couple that do, some of my friends, they're like, I'd love to invest, but I got too many other deals going on. You know, $50,000 is, is a big chunk of change for anybody to spend unless you're, uh, you know, a millionaire one way or another. Yeah, it is. Especially, yeah, if you're not accredited, 50K, I mean, is a, a, an enormous chunk of your net worth. I mean, just a million. You're not accredited, your net worth is less than a million. So 50K is a huge uh, percentage of your worth. How did you meet your partners if they live in Salt Lake City, you live in Rhode Island? All about networking. Mm. Uh, so you, we, you keep going to conferences. I keep going to conferences. You meet people. You build relationships. Uh, they needed a uh, somebody that could sign on the note. So I became a key partner on the deal. Ah, okay. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, they, they were going to JV it for a while, but they decided to, uh, in the end, syndicate it. And it was already set up as a 506C before I got involved. And uh, would I do a C, a C again? Probably, maybe not the next one. The thing with C's is that I really honestly think that's the wave of the future, especially hmm. with social media. That's the way I see it going. Because you can, like, I said, like you said, you can broadcast it anywhere. Um, B, um, we may try one at some point. Um, I know that the average syndicator loves them better. So uh, I have a friend that uh, did a C recently, and they've done a lot of Bs, and they said, Frank, that was a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, even for me, I mean, so for example, because we did it as a C, I had two people that were going to invest about 75000 each in the deal, and they couldn't invest because they weren't accredited. You know, and they're, I mean, I wouldn't say they were super close friends, but I did have a, a pre-existing substantive relationship. I've known them for years. Uh, I've been a member of my own local real estate group for over a decade. Wow. So, you know, uh, we have over 350 paying members. So uh, it's been around for a long time and uh, I help run it. So you know, it nice. That's really solid. I, I've heard of others, um, you know, that, that have had issues with their raises on 506Cs because a lot of their investor base, potential investor base is not accredited. And by going 506C, they count them out and then boom, it's a lot harder to raise the amount of money that they need to. So that could be one reason for the popularity of a 506B. No, I agree with you 100%. That's the same situation that I've heard. Um, besides maybe somebody like Neil Bawa, who's uh, very well connected. I don't know anybody, uh, and maybe even Rod Cleef. I don't know anybody else that's really doing Cs in an excitable way and always doing C's and loving it. You know, it, it, it's very much, so B is for, some people say B is for buddy. It's very much a relationship type of business. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, well, it has to be anyway, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, I do. Because if you're a C, if I, if I'm Mr. Cr Mr. Accredited investor and I see an advertisement one way or another for Frank's deal in Idaho, well, I mean, I don't know Frank. Why should I send Frank a hundred grand? I got a lot of uses for that hundred grand. 
But if I knew Frank and he had a 506B and he offered it to me, I might be more interested because I like Frank and I know he does good deals. So it makes a lot of sense, you, you know, why you'd want to yeah. get So it's funny you say that because every one of the people that, uh, that we had as an investor on the, on the passive side, uh, I've met through social media. Hmm. Uh, but two of them I met before the deal started. So, I mean, I didn't meet them in person before they invested, but just the fact that, uh, we have a pretty good Instagram following. I mean, we have a podcast ourselves and, uh, most of the, most of the accredited investors that we found were people that met us on social media, just because I, like I said, I didn't really have a big network of accredited investors in my own local space. Yeah. So your Instagram, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something I wanted to bring up. You know, I, I checked a little bit earlier, you're creeping up on uh, 10,000 followers, I believe, which is yes, no are. small feat for, you know, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. We've uh, worked very hard. Uh, it's, the main thing is all about consistency. Um, I have a few friends that are syndicated that only have, you know, two or 300 followers, stuff like that. And, uh, but we just keep, uh, trying to understand the algorithm without um, paying for fake followers and gradually uh, using hashtags and making some nice pictures and posting every single day, no matter what. Posting every day. That posting <laughs> every single day, no matter what is uh that's tough to do quality content on a daily basis. That's fresh and not constantly rehashing the same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Frank, I got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. All right. First one. What is the best investment that you ever made other than in your ed education? So the best investment I ever made, uh, some people don't believe this could be done, but, uh, we had a, uh, a single family that had a little bit of a title issue that one of my friends just wanted out and we bought it for $50,000 and it already had people living there. It was a, an originally a foreclosure. And the people that were living there ended up paying us. It was a discount, but they paid us about $1,100 a month. And they were late. As we were cleaning up the title, it probably took about two years to clean up the title. Wow. Uh, we, uh, we, let them, we had to do a full a re-foreclosure and everything else. But it was, um, they were probably late 36 payments out of 39. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> But when you buy a, it's a two hundred thousand dollar house that I bought for fifty thousand dollars, no money down. So, wow. Wow. Know, so I, I yeah, I, I still own it, but I'm actually um, I plan on selling it in this spring market. Just uh, where we are in the cycle, I think it's a good time to get rid of some of these single families because uh, right now the one percent rule is not working at all in my market. So in uh, single families, you're not going to see anything where the rents are. Uh, you know, if you don't know the 1% rule, basically, uh, if I can rent a house for $2,000 a month, um, 1% mean I could buy it for 200,000. But, uh, right now, a sim, a, a different house that I have that we're renting for 2000 a month, we're could sell it for about three twenty. Wow. wow. So that's why we're probably, we're going to unload a few of the single families just to move some money around, play Monopoly, you know, <laughs> not, buy, not buy a hotel today though. I did look at a hotel, uh, in the Virginia market at one point, just to invest as a crowdfund, not hmm. all my money, you know, stuff like that. That's probably the best investment though, that I, that I did. Nice. Nice. Well, I, I like the sound of that despite all of the, uh, the late payments, but, uh, 
Interesting. Well, we still got the money, but but it was just always late. (laughs) Ah, well, still getting the money is fine then, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she burned us on the end, but I mean, that's why we evicted her. (laughs) It all comes around. So on the other side of that best investment coin, we have the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever? Oh no, I have a bunch of those. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Probably the worst investment that I did. Um, Deciding which one. You know what? I'll just pick the one. This one I, I've, I've used once or twice before when people have asked. Uh, it was my first investment. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't tell you about it earlier in the story. Uh, after we bought our, our single family house, I decided that I was going to go down to a land auction in New York City. And uh, I think it was called landauction.com. I don't know if they're still in existence. But uh, they, would, they would buy up vacant lots cheaply around the country. And they would sell them at a big auction. And uh, you know how people all get excited with auctions and they overpay and everything else? Oh, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say necessarily overpaid. I just didn't understand enough about what it takes to build a house. So uh, I was able to pick up uh, a vacant lot in Western Massachusetts for about $20,000, which sounds like a great deal. They bought it for like six or five. Um, the problem was, was that it was virtually unbuildable. Mm. <laughs> it was... Uh, there was uh, you would need septic and you would need a well on the lot, and basically it was all shale underneath the ground. Ah man! It was the side of a hill, and uh, I had driven out to the site and everything else, but uh, I didn't realize how how hard it is to build. And uh, <laughs> I ended up losing about twenty thousand dollars on that deal. That was actually my first deal. That was actually before before I bought the multifamily. You know, wow. so I could have been done right then and say, oh, I'm just going to go back to teaching and work till the time I'm 85 or whatever it takes in today's day and age to actually retire. I think that's actually, uh, I think that's, I'm glad I brought that question up because, uh, you know, you, you very much could have said, ah, crap, I lost 20 grand. Nobody ever makes any money in real estate. I'm never going to do it again, but you didn't do that. And you've well made up the, the 20 K so good on you. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I've walked out and I have my philosophy is this whole thing about uh, riding a bike. And, uh, you know, if you or, or think of like an infant, when an infant's, you know, nine months old, 10 months old, they fall down a lot and they get mm-hmm. right back up. They, they, they are going to fall down again. They might just like with real estate, I might lose money here or there, but uh, you got to keep going forward. You keep trying to learn from it. You know, same thing riding a bike, you know, you're going to fall off once in a while, but eventually you're going to stay up there. You usually do pretty good. Interesting. I think that is a very good analogy to learning what it takes to be a real estate investor is falling down a lot. I haven't lost 20 grand yet, but I have fallen down. Interesting. My favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? most important lesson uh besides getting back up again uh that's a good one yeah um i guess part of it is the fact that no matter how much you think you know if you keep challenging yourself you need to learn and grow more okay so there's just like so like with the syndication that we did right now and uh we're doing other things too i mean right now we're looking to build a uh 18 unit apartment complex here in uh within five miles of my house and we basically have a one acre lot 
and across the street from it's an 18 about it's about 1.4 acres and there's an 18 unit condo development across the street from the lot and uh, we're working on figuring out how much money it's going to cost and what it's going to take to build that and it's like wow there's so much involved here cool and yeah it's pretty cool i mean i actually tried about three or four years ago i bought a sing i built a single family house and uh, I didn't make any money, but I didn't lose any money. <laughs> but uh, I gradually kept going. And uh, like I said, I didn't, I didn't lose any money, which was good. We broke about even. You know, I've talked to uh, other folks that, uh, yeah, about that topic, uh, buying lots and building single families and, and small properties. And most people seem to about break even, if not make a little bit of money, maybe lose a little bit of money. But it's, it doesn't seem to produce the same kind of return that, buying existing properties on a, at a discount uh, will produce. That, that seems to be a much uh, more productive strategy. No, I agree 100% on that. Um, there's just so many, uh, there's so much sunk in costs at one point or another. When we were selling the house, um, it's like, I got hundreds of thousands of dollars in this dirt. I got to move this. <laughs> you know, taxes will eat you alive. They're like little alligators, these, uh, these, these vacant lots sometimes when you pick them up. But if you pick them up for a great enough price, I'll still do it. I mean, if you, if you, sometimes that's why builders, people get upset all, all the time when builders buy properties or offer such a low price for the lot. It's like, yeah, that's because they really understand what it takes to actually build if you're going to make a profit. <laughs> yeah, they can't pay top dollar for the lot if they want to make money on building a property on top of it. It's just, it's hard to do. Yeah. Well, Frank, thanks for joining us today. I, I really was looking forward to, to sitting down and talking with you and learning more about you and your business and everything. If folks want to learn more about you and get in touch, where can they reach you? Give us the name of the podcast, the Instagram, all of it. Sure. So we have a, a podcast and an Instagram with the same name. It is The Cashflow Kings. Uh, my shirt says Cashflow Kings, but you actually have to put the word the in front of it. Uh, I We just love the, 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 the way the shirt looks. So we kept it, it looks good. and uh, you know I'm always out there uh, you'll see me on Facebook and every other type of social media we've downloaded TikTok even though we haven't done much with it yet and <laughs> always trying to, well you know there's, there's new people coming into real estate all the time uh, we are we deal with any age group but uh, the younger crowd is what's going to be buying investing in the future so we're just getting ready for them and uh, send, me a, send me a shout out at any time um, I'm always willing to help uh, that's probably part of that teacher in me. Some people say I give away too much for free, but we're always helping, giving advice, et cetera. Nice. Well, you know, I definitely appreciate that. I think there is a lot of value in giving knowledge away for free. So, so good on you for that. So thanks for joining us today. Once again, everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm finally calling it Apple Podcasts, not iTunes, but that habit's not going to stick. Uh, if you know anyone out there that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our tribe. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.